First of all, you can ignore what's in your bulletin. I didn't read the sermon outline until I got here this morning. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't follow it. In my experience, there are two kinds of sermons. There's the long-range invitation, where you're asked several weeks in advance, and you have the luxury of endless hours to read, to pray, to do research, to write and meditate, tear up, rewrite, revise. And then there's the second kind, the emergency call, to prepare some sort of message. Today is an example of the second kind. As you now know, Pastor Hink found out Thursday that he had shingles. Friday morning, he asked me to pray. Friday evening, he asked me to preach. (laughs) I should have seen that coming, but I was blocking it out, you know. Some people have shingles for weeks, months, years. Hey, he can get over it in eight hours. He's strong. Um, He didn't, but let's pray for the eight days. We can do that. Pastor Hink did provide me with the title of the message, God Size Grace. If I came up with anything worth saying, and if you benefit from hearing it, that's an example of God Size Grace. So let's go. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Jonah. Jonah is an amazing book. It would make a movie of epic proportions. Think the Exodus or the Ten Commandments. You can see the water, you can see the waves, you can see that enormous fish that somebody constructs. Marvelous thing. But Jonah helps us to see God a little differently. We tend to package God in ways that are easy for us to understand. Easy to talk about, a little bit easy to deal with. We need to enlarge our concept of God. We need to think God-size. He is and can do far more than we can ask or imagine. The story of Jonah helps us to see God not in our natural and normal terms, but at his supernatural best. So let's consider the story so far. Jonah 1 illustrates the extent of God's love. Remember, God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh and announce his judgment. Jonah was disobedient. He fled from God. He jumped aboard a ship and sailed for Tarshish. Pastor talked about the foolishness of God. Why the Ninevites, of all people? And why bother to warn them? Why Jonah? Well, God's intent was not just to change the heart of the Ninevites, but to change the heart of Jonah. Why does he bother with us? Because he longs to change our hearts as well and to draw us closer to him. I think I mentioned that at annual conference, Bishop David Kendall asked us to discard the idea of an image of an angry God with a clenched fist raised up over his people and replace it with the image of a God with a broken heart longing for the people that he dearly loves to come home. God interrupted Jonah's flight with a violent storm, and then he arranged for a fish to rescue Jonah from drowning by swallowing him. God loves us enough to interrupt our foolishness. God always initiates. He acts first. In Romans 5.8 we read, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Has God ever stopped you in your tracks? Has he interrupted your life with his love? Remember, God initiates and we respond. Pastor Inc. urges to begin to respond to God's love by lowering our resistance. In Jonah 2, we read about God's power. From inside that fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Jonah was in desperate need of deliverance. Conditions inside the stomach of the fish were ghastly and unsustainable. There was nothing he could do to save himself. We all know someone who has reached the end of his or her own resources. They don't have the spiritual, psychological, intellectual, practical, or financial means to climb out of the pit they have dug and fallen into. Like Jonah, they are in need not just of relief from a temporary setback, but deliverance from a life that has gone off course. We were urged to do three things, to pray for them, to grieve for them and with them, to hope for them, and to lead them to a new life of hope. Maybe that person in need of deliverance is you. If you're still breathing, God isn't finished with you yet. He has greater plans for you than you can imagine, and he has the power to make his plans and your dreams come true. And that brings us to Jonah chapter 3, the story of God-sized grace. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. I'm using the NIV. Otherwise, just listen. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, and he proclaimed, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God's repeated command. In Jonah 1, chapter 2, God said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, 
because its wickedness has come up before me. And then in Jonah chapter 3, God says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. God does not change his mind. God does not change his commandments. There's no point in whining, arguing, or running away like Jonah tried to do. It's a waste of time. God insists on obedience. In Psalm 103 we read, From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Yes, God insists on obedience, but God makes that obedience possible. He doesn't command us to do something that we absolutely cannot manage. God commands are not necessarily easy, but they are possible. An old hymn says, Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Jonah's obedience. The first time Jonah disobeyed and ran away from God, as if that were possible. The second time Jonah obeyed. He went to Nineveh and preached death and destruction. It could have been very dangerous for him to pronounce such threats, which may be why he ran away the first time. We get the impression, however, that Jonah was rather looking forward to seeing God destroy a powerful city that had been Israel's arch enemy for a long time. The reaction of the Ninevites, faith, fasting, repentance. I'm sure the Ninevites' response was not what Jonah expected. Was it what God expected? Is God ever surprised? Can we ever say, aha, I fooled you, God? David wisely wrote, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know it completely. Faith. The Ninevites believed God. That response is truly amazing. Bear in mind that Nineveh was the flourishing capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was situated on the east bank of the Tigris River near the modern city of Mosul, Iraq. It was the home of Sennacherib, who was king of Assyria during the biblical reign of King Hezekiah and during the lifetime of the prophet Isaiah. The prophets Nahum and Zephaniah later predicted its ruin and utter desolation. So the Ninevites were definitely Gentile, not Jewish. There is no history of them having a positive relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Yet they immediately believed in response to the message given by Jonah. That must have been some sermon. Fasting. The Ninevites' belief was accompanied by appropriate action. Immediately, a fast was proclaimed. From ancient times, fasting has been a primary spiritual discipline among people of many religious persuasions. It is voluntary self-denial from the second greatest physical necessity for the maintenance of human life, nourishment. Oxygen is, of course, the first necessity. The Ninevites apparently denied themselves and their animals both food and water. 
Time out for an advertisement. In addition, fasting is a historical spiritual discipline. It's like solitude, silence, meditation, frugality, and sacrifice. These spiritual disciplines fell out of favor among many Christians for centuries because of the perceived link with attempting to earn one's salvation through works. And yes, they were misused. But in the last 30 years or so, there's been a renewed emphasis on the spiritual disciplines as a valuable means of preparation and training for living a Christ-centered life. You can compare the spiritual disciplines to the training that an athlete goes through. You can't run a marathon just because you want to. It takes lots of training and physical discipline. It's like the discipline that a scholar goes through. You can't just take your God-given mind and a little want to and ace an ACT test or an SAT test or anything else. It takes disciplined hard work and study. And we can't just be spiritually strong and able to stand up to any challenge if our minds, our hearts, our souls are not prepared. And the spiritual disciplines is one means of helping us gain that inner strength. Repentance. In addition to fasting, the Ninevites also demonstrated their repentance by putting on sackcloth. Sackcloth is a coarsely woven fabric, usually made of goat's hair. It later came to mean also a garment made from such cloth. It was chiefly worn as a token of mourning by the Israelites. It was furthermore a sign of submission or grief or self-humiliation. It was occasionally worn by the prophets. Just like the hair shirts worn later by some Christians, sackcloth was intentionally uncomfortable. It was a means of mortifying the flesh for a spiritual purpose. There are several Old Testament examples, both of fasting and of wearing sackcloth, to signify repentance. In 1 Kings 21, we read about Ahab. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord and was urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before him. But when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth, and he went around meekly. Later in Nehemiah chapter 9, we read, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord for a quarter of the day. And they spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. In the New Testament, the obvious example is John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, 
and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So we spoke of the response of the Ninevites. Faith, fasting, and repentance. But what of the king? In verse 6, there's special mention made of the response of the king himself. First, public humility. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This was an extraordinary display of self-humiliation. Picture, I don't know, the Queen of England, the President of the United States, maybe your boss at work behaving like that. Only a serious desire to amend one's life and to avert imminent disaster could lead to this kind of behavior. And then the king issued the decree. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Moreover, he issued a universal call to prayer. He said, let everyone call urgently on God. Even a pagan king somehow realized the necessity of prayer. How much more then should we, who have been raised in the Christian tradition and are blessed with the benefit of scripture and a great cloud of witnesses, make prayer our first response when faced with any situation, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, prayer first. Now, I have no idea what or how the Ninevites prayed. Their knowledge of God and their understanding of his ways had to have been minimal. Nevertheless, as we see later, God focused not on the accuracy of their theology or the eloquence of their words, but on the sincerity of their hearts. And that, too, should give us encouragement and comfort when we are at a loss as to what or how to pray. Think through the prayer the Lord taught his disciples. The sentences are short. The vocabulary is simple. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And then the king called for a change of behavior. In addition to commanding universal prayer, the king called for them to change He said, give up their evil ways and the violence. Now, lest we heap too much praise on the king of Nineveh, we then see the very fragile and flawed human side of him as he says, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So he seems to be exhibiting a primitive and tentative faith, but he's obviously still troubled by doubt. Can we relate to that? Or is our faith always rock solid? We may not come out and say, I'll pray about that. Who knows? It might help. But do we first attempt to solve a problem by our own efforts, by consulting experts, and only calling on God as a last resort, a resort that we're just not too confident of? We start out, Lord, if it be your will, 
when we kind of stumble on. But Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And then we have God. At the very end of the third chapter of Jonah, God re-entered the scene. God's response is given in exactly one sentence. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The third chapter portrays God as the epitome of grace and mercy. First of all, God forgave Jonah. He is the God of second chances, and some of us know also the third and the fourth chances. He could have let Jonah drown in the sea after the other sailors threw him overboard. He could have let him die a horrible death inside the fish. At the very least, he could have just left him on the shore to fend for himself and chosen a more worthy candidate to send his message. But instead, he said, Okay, let's try this again. Jonah, I'm commanding you to go to Nineveh and deliver my message. Got it? Secondly, God forgave the Ninevites. I don't know precisely what kinds of sin and wickedness they were involved in, but even their own king described them as evil and violent. God could have easily wiped them off the face of the earth. But he didn't. He warned them, and he held off, and he didn't bring about the destruction he had threatened. A word of caution. The Ninevites should not be given credit for saving themselves any more than we should be. Nor did their repentance force God's hand. Their change of heart simply allowed them to be receptive to the forgiveness mercy, and grace of God. God will forgive us. Scripture abounds with stories of forgiveness. Consider David. Even after committing both adultery and murder, God accepted his cries of repentance, forgave him, and continued to work with him. David is even remembered as a man after God's own heart. In the New Testament, consider Peter, who denied him, the apostles who abandoned him in the garden, and Paul, who persecuted him and his church. All were forgiven. All were brought back into fellowship. All experienced fruitful ministries, and all enjoyed his grace and favor. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses. Why? because the Father will forgive us. And then Jesus added, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Think about that. Have you ever forgiven someone? Raise your hand. Have you ever forgiven someone? Yeah. I think we've got almost unanimity on that. The very fact that we are able to forgive those who offend us is itself proof that God can forgive. We certainly aren't able to exhibit a compassionate, accepting love that is beyond God's capability. Remember, our greatest virtues 
are but a flawed reflection of his glorious attributes. Ask and you shall receive applies especially to forgiveness. Let me share a personal story. It's not quite like Jonah's, but you're going to see some parallels. I was raised in a large Protestant denomination. I received an initial call to ministry when I was about in the sixth grade. I was excited. And that summer I went to church camp. It was up in northern Wisconsin. It was called Pine Lake because there was a lake and a lot of pine trees. And I went up to the chaplain one day after chapel, and I told him all about my vision about being a minister. And he said, no way. There aren't any women clergy. I was crushed. I hadn't even considered that possibility. I didn't question it. Later, I talked to my pastor at home, and he he told me, yeah, that's true. We don't ordain women. But he said that I could be a deaconess. I had never met a deaconess. I didn't know what they did. I thought, oh, this is fascinating. Tell me about it. What does a deaconess do? He said, a deaconess will teach Sunday school, will type the bulletin, and will play the piano and the organ. I was in junior high. I was an assistant Sunday school teacher. Every other Sunday, I typed the bulletin. And remember, this is with a manual typewriter, not a computer. And it was with, I don't remember what they're called, but those are three-level, three-page stencil things. You have to roll them in. And if you make even one mistake, like one letter, you've got to take the whole thing out of the typewriter, smear that fluid back in place, line it back up in the, in the typewriter, roll it back up, try to get it exactly right, and fix the one letter that you've typed wrong. I was also playing the piano for Sunday school, and I was playing the organ for church for the early service. This was not a career option. So I just sort of gave up. At 16, I ran away. And then at age 18, I fled to the convent. That was something that a girl or a woman could definitely do. They let me in. Now, I'll tell you, three years in a convent is much better than three days in the belly of a whale. (laughs) I learned almost everything I know about prayer in the convent. Jonah learned a lot about prayer in the belly of that great fish. I guess it wasn't a whale, it wasn't a mammal, it was a fish. Anyway, I also learned almost everything that I know about dusting, vacuuming, scrubbing, laundry, ironing, cooking, trash. Now granted, my mother taught me all the basics, but Sister Mary Aloysia took good housekeeping to a whole nother level. She apparently thought that cleanliness being next to godliness, was how she was going to train a bunch of young novices to be saintly nuns. Or perhaps she looked at the fallout, or the, what do you call it, when people leave, <laughs> the, the number of people who leave the convent, and she thought, I better raise a bunch of housewives. <laughs> so I left, and I became a housewife. <laughs> so I guess she was right. Um, but there was still that, you know, that call back whenever it was, sixth grade. Time passed. Decades passed. And in 2010, I was ordained a free Methodist elder. Both my life and Jonah's life demonstrate God calls. God persists. God forgives. And throughout, 
God showers us with his abundant grace. So what do you do when you mess up? I'm not talking about monumental sins, but this applies to those too. I'm talking about those times when you don't listen. Or you listen and you don't understand. Or you understand and you don't follow through. First of all, admit it, both to yourself and to God. And if anyone else has been directly affected, you'll have to admit it to them too. If this sounds like the spiritual discipline of confession, yep, that's what it is. Before we're forgiven, we have to admit, we have to confess, and then he can forgive us. Secondly, repent and change your behavior. Now, not later, and if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Sackcloth is no longer a big deal, and those of us who don't have fireplaces don't have any ashes, so I'm not recommending the sackcloth and ashes. But there's something you can do to indicate that you do repent, that you want to turn your life around. Third, pray for forgiveness. He's always waiting. He's already listening. And as David says, before a word is on your tongue, he knows what you're going to say. It doesn't have to be very profound. You can kind of stumble around about it. But tell him what you did. Tell him you're sorry. Ask for forgiveness. And then fourth, and maybe most important, trust in his infinite mercy and grace. There is no way to quantify the grace of God. Jesus prayed, and this was when he was being killed, when he was being nailed to the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If that was within the realm of possibility, how much more is the Father willing to forgive those who do know, who are sorry, and who express the desire to change? Numerous hymns have been written about God's amazing grace. I'd like to share one with you, and we're not going to sing it, because I don't want you to be distracted by the melody, the rhythm, the harmony, or the fingerings. I just want you to think about the words. Julia Johnston wrote, Grace greater than our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, 
Will you, this moment, his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace is unmerited, rich, free, available to all. So now may the grace of God heal you, body, mind, and spirit. May the grace of God cleanse you from all that would prevent you from honoring your heavenly Father. And may the grace of God transform you daily into the image of his glorious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.